Hello everyone, welcome back to Fits and a Fighter. Yes, it is back. A new episode for you. Thanks for hanging with me through, what, I think a three-week break. Uh, Just got back earlier today. It is Monday, August 12th from the lovely country of Uruguay. That was a long travel, and man, it was cold down there. The dead of winter south of the equator, and we were pretty far south, so it was like in the 40s. It's freezing, uh, especially for the middle of summer, for us. Anyways, um, just wanted to let everyone know a quick announcement. If you didn't know already, I started a YouTube channel for this show. So podcast app is obviously the easiest way to listen to it, and it's still audio only right now. I hope to get it on camera so it can kind of be... You know, let's call it what it is, like the Joe Rogan show, where it's like it's on YouTube, you can watch it, or you can just listen to it. And then also, if you don't have an hour or plus to listen to every show, um, I've started clipping off some of the best parts of the early episodes, and I'm going to continue to put up clips that are four minutes, five minutes, eight minutes long, um, so you can kind of consume different content that way. So, um, pretty exciting. I I just want to keep kind of doing different things with the show. And uh, keeping seeing where it goes, and of course, have the best interviews possible. Um, when I was traveling, and I'll be traveling more, so there should be more episodes here because I'm gonna get kind of busy on the road through late August. I'll be in China, and then uh, a couple of shows in September, and maybe three shows in a row in October. So, hopefully, what that equals is good guests because on the road is really the time that I have usually on Fridays to get with one of the guest fighters or a teammate or a coach or something like that. Speaking of coaches, Mark Montoya is one of the best there is. He's one of the best corner men. His gym, Factory X, has been on fire. And I've gotten to know him from traveling. I see him all in different parts of the world and we kind of talk about that. But wanted to pick his brain too on his coaching philosophy and figure out what's clicking. Because, you know, Anthony Smith, Ian Heinish, uh, Chris Gutierrez got a big win in Uruguay. There's been some fighters out of that stable that are really kind of up-and-coming guys in the UFC. Devontae Smith is one of them. So um, thought he was a good guest to have on. I had Saif Saud, of course, on episode three, and he lent a lot of insight into his background and what he uses. And Mark Montoya is a great guy and a really good coach, and I always love talking to him. So we got together in Uruguay, and uh, this was the result. Subscribe to that YouTube channel if you could. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. I'm at Brennan Fitz TV on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, enjoy the episode. All right, Mark Montoya. How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? It's good to see you here in Uruguay. Yeah, so uh, I don't see you unless we're like halfway across the world. <laughs> I agree. Right? Totally. Yeah, that's exactly. Sweden. Yeah. I, I feel like I've seen you only in foreign countries. I know, in foreign countries, but... Yeah. I feel like we've seen each other for sure in in the states, but yeah, yeah, definitely, it's definitely more outside of yeah, uh, of exactly. The states. How do you like the travel? Uh, the travel I've grown to just love. You know, it's part of part of the job. I mean, I I don't even consider this a job. I just feel blessed to be able to do all the stuff I get to do and see different parts of the world. I mean, I've been really blessed to travel around the world a bunch of times, and so. How do you bitch about that? You right. Know? So right. you know there there are obviously grinds in anything you do, and like you know I haven't slept in over twenty four hours. So, um, but we just <laughs> a drink a lot of coffee. Here, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. How about you? Do you enjoy it? I, I like it. I I do. I'm the same as you. Where it's like I'll take the miles. I'll travel around the world. It's ver- like I came from the world of college sports and pro sports, where yep. it's like you're only going around the North America and the U.S. Really. Yep. 
So I have friends that go to different college towns or just those cities, and we go to those too, right? You know, I think I saw you in Lincoln, Nebraska last year and all that stuff, right? But, exactly. Uh, to be able to come to a place like this is kind of cool too. It is cool, and it's As it's long as the restaurants are good, hotel's decent. Exactly. Right? Relatively exactly. safe. Exactly. That's what you want. And, you know, we've been in spots before. I know you have. Uh, we don't have to mention where, but we've been in spots before where it's not all of that, and it's a little sketchy, and so you appreciate yeah. when it's not that. So, right, exactly. But they did issue, the UFC did issue a travel advisory via the email uh, this yeah, week, so that was interesting. I know, I thought, because I don't, it seems fine. I agree. It seems, right. seems a little cold, though. It's cold. Dead of winter down it, here in August. I know, it's cold. So, um, fits in a fighter, it's like, you know, long form about you and about your journey. So we'll go back to the beginning. Okay. And, you're, and I'm going to have to pry it out of you because, you know, fighters have Wikipedia pages and their records and who they fought and when. You can kind of tell. But where are you from? Because I know we'll get to Factory X and sure. kind of the stable that you've built in, in Colorado. But where, did you, where are you from? So I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. I'm okay. a fourth generation Coloradan, actually. My, my family homesteaded in southern Colorado in 1850. And so I have deep roots there. Um, actually, I'm almost 20% Native American. So okay. uh, my father is, is like 40 plus percent. So we have some deep roots in Colorado. It's like we were just talking about. I've been really blessed like you to travel around the world. But the, it's really tough to beat Denver. That, that's a place that regardless of the roots, just it's a vacation state. And so uh, I, I feel super blessed to be there and, and just be from there. And that's, that's something that with the altitude too, that we get to take advantage of when it comes to training. Yeah. So born, raised Denver. Yes. Right in Denver, just outside. Right in the hood, man. Really? I was born right in the hood. Yep. There you um, go. My what was growing up there, like right in the city? Well, it was tough because my mom was 15 when she was pregnant with me. My dad was 16. So, wow. you know, that I, I lived with my grandmother my, my entire life. I never had my own room until I graduated college. So and when I went to college, of course, I had roommates like most people do. Yeah. And, but through my, through my childhood, you know, I shared rooms with my, my brother. And then I have two younger sisters. And so shared rooms with all of them uh, leading up to it. So... You know, ha- having having that kind of upbringing is kids raising kids is, is an interesting thing. Uh, super grateful for my grandmother and, and giving us the ability to at least stay with her. But, you know, as you can imagine, you, if your mother is 16 when she has you, that's, uh, that's a rough start. Yeah. So wh- what was that like? Um, it's, it's interesting because you grow up and learn a lot of what not to do. Uh, You know, it's, I don't blame either of my parents because they did the best they could, but you're going to have a lot of turbulence, and especially given demographically where I lived. You know, I lived right in the the heart of the, the city, essentially, in a bad neighborhood, like a lot of people that are in sports or fighting, you know, come from that type of background a lot of times. I did. So a lot of times when I talk to my team, I'm talking to myself because, uh, you know, I'm not different from them. I'm just older, really. So I've, I've lived a lot of what they, they're living and where they've come from. So part of that gives me an advantage, too, because I'm able to connect with those kids and, and understand and 
it's hard to forget that that type of upbringing yeah. for sure. What do you remember like the turbulence? Yeah, the turbulence. Well, you know, I, I mean, I grew up on welfare. Super I was never I was always annoyed by that. That's something that and embarrassed to be honest. You know, that's something that I was like, man, I I wouldn't go into the grocery store with my mother cuz I was like, I am not going in there. You know, when when they had welfare money then, it looked like monopoly money, you know. And so everyone knew that you weren't paying with US dollars. And so that stuff bothered me a lot. I, I was embarrassed by that, but I was also motivated by that. That's something as a young kid that I was motivated really, really young and early because I was like, I don't want to repeat this. That's something that I want to break out of and I want to I wanna course correct and I want to see my kids, you know, back in the day, of course, I didn't have kids then, but right. I want to, you know, look into the future. I want to see my kids not have to go through that and and live live kind of that day-to-day life where you know you're you're infested with a lot of drugs and alcohol and gangs and violence and that kind of stuff when did you do you remember when you it like hit you because obviously when you're a kid they can parents can hide a lot of things and steer you toward different things do you remember when it hit you that my situation is different Different meaning that I, I was uh, going to course correct? Well, that my parents were really young and that were on welfare. Like, when did that come in where, where those feelings of kind of embarrassment? I mean, not till later, really. Not until... It didn't really hit me until I was out of college. And, and I was like, huh, that was interesting. I, you know, I thought what I, what I was living was normal. I didn't, I didn't know that right. it wasn't, you know, so... When I got out of college and or even into college, you know, there were several stages in my life. So I would say my parents got divorced this summer going into my freshman year in high school. Okay. And my dad actually moved to the suburbs, which is one of the reasons, probably a, a life changer for me, for sure. So I was in a lot of trouble as a youngster. I got in a lot of trouble as a young kid. Doing what? And, um, just dumb stuff, you know, just just dumb stuff the kids do, you know, and, and just, you know, I, I went to jail and, and, you know, it was, but I learned from that quickly, you know, and I didn't repeat that as even a, a, an older teenager. Right. And, and realized, man, I'm going to go down the same road of either my family or friends that I don't want to go down. And, and so I understood that that's, I understood really young that I didn't want to live that way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how that happened. I'm, I'm going to say some of it was by the grace of God and some of it was by choices. And so those are things that I, I just realized. But there were several stages. There was a stage in when, I, when I was a freshman in high school and I moved to the suburbs and that was really eye-opening to me and culture shock for sure. Um, that's where I discovered that there's actually blonde girls in the world, right? <laughs> moved, to, <laughs> moved to the suburbs and I was like, man, uh, where did these blonde people come from? <laughs> and so um, that became my kryptonite. Of course, my wife is blonde. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, and then in college, when I when I finished college, it, you know, people come from all walks of life. So I just kind of, you just start to realize, and as you get older, you start to appreciate and recognize, like, oh wow, I'm I'm the same here with these people. I'm not here with these people, and then. And then you kind of look back and you're like, huh, that's where I came from. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I always tell this story to people. Um, when I first started coaching and then started to get some attention as a coach, like being on TV, for example, 
You know, I'm on TV for what, 45 seconds maybe? Sometimes. Maybe. Depends on how many fighters you have exactly. on the card, right? Maybe. So, but some of my old friends that I grew up with would, would send me messages via um, social media and they would say, hey homie, don't forget to where, where you came from, you know? And my response has always been, even to this day, is I've never forgotten where I come from, that's why I don't want to go back. And so uh, those are things that, that kind of gives you a little glimpse of what that can be like. It's like that they want to pull you back in the bucket and not see you get out. Not because, they're, not because they don't want to see you be successful, I think it's because their life is not the same. And yeah. so you have some of that that happens in, in life. And, it's gotten better as, as time's gone on, but I remember at the beginning it was a little turbulent that way. What was their reaction when you would say stuff? Nothing. Like they wouldn't say much to me, but they would repeat the same thing sometimes. Would you, you know? call them still friends? No. No. They're just kind I of mean, people from your past. Yeah, no. they're acquaintances now. I yeah. mean, a friend is someone that I have their phone number and I call them and we yeah. do stuff with or we at least chat. Right. So, um, what's your relationship like with your parents now? Um, it's good and bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the similar thing. It's turbulent, you know, it's, uh, it, it goes in waves kind of. Yeah. So my parents are both proud of me. Uh, My siblings have done well as well. So for us to be that type of quote unquote success story Mm -hmm. is cool. And I know they're proud of, of what we're doing. Um, but there's still some turbulence there, you know? Uh, so, but I mean, who doesn't have that? Yeah. At least, at least the people I know, they, they still have some of that. It's kind of just a matter of how long it takes to get there. Almost. For sure. For sure. In a lot of cases. Yeah, for sure. So when, what, did, what were you into growing up? So I was always into, I mean, I played all team sports as a kid. Okay, yeah. I played everything uh, from basketball, baseball, football, soccer, right. like everything. I, I, I did all of that. But. You know, when I was growing up, boxing was huge. And I love boxing. I've always loved boxing. That's something I love. So I boxed as a kid. And I was into wrestling too, so uh, I, I loved to wrestle. But I played team sports in addition to boxing and wrestling. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I played college baseball. Where'd you go to college? I went to uh, a junior college in Kansas City called okay. Johnson County. Okay. And then I went to, uh, graduated from Metro State in Denver. Sure. So I played baseball both places yeah and and you know I was able to do that and and enjoy that part of my life but I also really loved the the individual sport like boxing or wrestling and and you know when I finished playing college baseball a lot of my friends transitioned into life and played you know just like on a rec league of softball yeah but for me that wasn't enough it just didn't fuel me It, it was I played one time and I was like, "Fuck this!" I don't it was know, a, like it was this. a good time thing and not a yeah, sport thing. I didn't like that at all. Yeah. And so, I don't know if you remember, but some of your some of your listeners probably do. But back in the day, they used to have ISKA kickboxing on ESPN two late at night. Okay. And I so I was watching ISK or uh, I was watching ESPN two and ISKA kickboxing came on, and Muay Thai came on. It was uh, it was about ninety seven, and I remember watching a Muay Thai fight and I was like, that's something I want to do, you know? And so I got really just fortunate that there was a, there was a Muay Thai school near me. Yeah. 
And they were just trailblazers. They were way ahead of their game in the sense of what they had. At, the, at that time, uh, Dwayne Ludwig was training there. Brad Gum, uh, who fought in the UFC, fought Shoney Carter, for example. Um, Oscar Martinez, who owns a school there, and Dave Ruiz, who owns a school in Denver as well. Those guys were all training there. We didn't really have coaches, um, but they were all training there. And, and I got there, and I was like, okay let's do this thing you know we we would train together and and we had a blast uh together and then we kind of all branched off started doing our own stuff but that was the initial piece after after college where i was like this is something i could really get into and mm -hmm. and i loved i loved the art of muay thai and was able to compete and i was able to train with the ties off and on and and just had a blast you know and so and then obviously you've evolved into MMA. Yeah, but so it started in you taking you were taking fights, pro yeah, fights. Yeah, hundred percent. I would I I took um, I fought. There wasn't a lot of fights in Denver at the time. Yeah, is the thing. So I actually traveled to Clearwater, Florida, and uh, a, a guy named Vut Kamnark was uh, a Thai that was there and had a bunch of his his um, Thai coaches there and, and fighters actually. I remember looking in this magazine. I, I, th I believe it was Kung Fu Magazine, but I was looking in, ma in Kung Fu Magazine. There was this full page ad, and it said, you know, come and train and, and do the seminar for a week in Clearwater, Florida. And at the end, if you wanted to, you could fight at, 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 in the weekend, like in this, uh, in this gymnasium type thing where they set up a ring. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, I'm in. So, <laughs> but at the time, you had to fill out this little. Um, handwritten little note that you would pill out of the magazine, you know, and then you'd mail it, and then you'd wait for a response from them. And I would say, I don't know, maybe two weeks went by, and then I got this phone call from this dude that I could barely understand, speaking in this foreign language that I hadn't heard much of, and he, it was Vut who was Thai, and he was like, hey, I received your... Uh, I received your information and, and it looks like you want to fight and come train with us. And I said, heck yeah. And so all that stuff I did was always on my own dime. It's not like today where you know, you're getting paid to do that. But right. I, I just had a passion for that and loved it. And, and that's where that all started was, was right there. and Went to Clearwater and, and trained with them and was like, wow, this is really cool. And had the ability to um, see what it was like on that end. And, yeah. and that really sparked my love for just Muay Thai and martial arts in general. Of course, I boxed and wrestled as a young kid, and I always loved that piece. Yeah. But that was the, I would say that was the secondary piece to what really, really pushed me into what I get to do today. When you saw the thing on ESPN2, uh, and you were like, I want to get into that, what did you... Did you want to get into it to train, or did you want to get into it to fight? Both. But you weren't scared of the fight aspect of no, it? No, I fought, I fought my whole life in right. the streets. I mean, I fought, I boxed as a kid, I wrestled, so... And then I played, of course, like I said, a lot of team sports. Yeah. And so... Uh, and you were played, comfortable with the combat. I love competition, yeah. and I'm, I'm a terrible loser. And so uh, I had to learn, I had to learn that losing is learning, but not to accept learning, or not to accept losing. Right. And so that's something that 
I've never been afraid of. I mean, I still train with my guys to this day. You know, I still, I don't spar hard anymore, mm -hmm. but I still flow spar with them. I still roll with them. I still wrestle with them. I do everything uh, with my guys still to this day, every week, you know. So if you're on your own dime to kind of, as you're getting into martial arts, what did you do uh, other to, to work, to support yourself? Yeah, I've, I've, my whole adult life I've been in sales. So um, I, was in, I was in sales and I was, I was just doing that piece because that was an ends to a means. I, I just recently got married right when I started Muay Thai. Okay. And so my wife, has been along with that ride from the very, very, very beginning. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we were married and maybe a couple months later I started doing that. So she really hasn't known any different <clears throat> in the sense of, at that time, let's be honest, that was a hobby for me. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a career. Yeah. So that was a hobby. A lot of that is based on the return no on investment. You know, the investment that's being put in on the mat at the time the return financially wasn't there yet. And so um, maybe a couple people at that time in 97, 98 were making a little money, but yeah. not many. And so the love for that sport and the arts and all of that was why I was doing it. And it's, and again, softball, rec softball wasn't feeding my competition yeah. spirit. So <laughs> I was like, I need to do something that really gravitates toward me and I gravitate toward it. And I remember my friends going, what the hell are you doing, man? You know? And I would tell them and they'd be like, is that like some Billy Blank shit? You know? Yeah. I'm like, sort of, but not really. But, but Billy Blank actually is a badass, yeah. but you don't realize, you know? So yeah. anyway, they didn't, they didn't know. So, but. And when the internet doesn't exist like it does now, you can't just give somebody a link to be like, this is what it is. Exactly, exactly. It's like infomercials and whatever's no, exactly. in between on late hours. Exactly. Did you ever think that the money would come in this avenue of sport and competition, what you got into? To be honest, I didn't care. I didn't, I, I've never, even to this day, I don't, that's never my initial thought, the money. It's, as a coach, it's to help kids advance and, and be on the journey to watch them and help them chase their dreams and goals. And of course I have goals as a coach as well. But my first goal, my, even my second goal is not financial. So I really didn't care. I mean, I did, I worked in sales my whole life to, you know, obviously pay the bills and take care of my family. But the thing that was feeding my soul was the ability to go out and train. And for some reason, I hadn't trained but four months in Muay Thai and not even maybe three and they were asking me if I would help teach I was like man I don't know shit you know yeah and they're like you know more than you think and you know I just I really didn't know anything but for some reason they saw in me what I didn't see yet and was that I was a good coach and and so I started coaching really early on and just started learning that aspect too and that was never my intention I never did it to start a gym. That was never my intention. I yeah. wasn't like, my goal is to start this gym and we're gonna do these things. It was just, I loved training and I loved doing all that stuff and I loved giving back, but I also like, loved to compete myself and I, and I loved the daily training. So it just, it may, it, still to this day, it makes me a better person doing that daily. Right. 
so to give it away to yeah and to train and to get on the mat and train i mean it just it for me it just feel i don't know it settles me down right and i'm not i'm mentally and physically a way better person yeah when um how many pro fights did you have never fought as a pro oh you didn't no so i fought everything i fought was amateur fights okay so i don't know 40 50 a bunch so i never fought as a as a professional um in muay thai or or any of that stuff right and it was a different world back then it was way different yeah i mean essentially they they could have been pro they, they weren't sanctioned right they weren't I don't even know what the hell you call them. They, were, they were just, I mean, we would fight. Because I've heard the stories, like Joe Benavides, like we fought at a bar and the cops were there. It wasn't sanctioned. They were just ever. there to like make sure exactly things were okay. And exactly. then they shut it down halfway through. Right. Like one know? of my first experiences was in a strip mall, no bigger than this room, a little, a little strip mall uh, store. store. Yeah. And they had, there was no commission. There was a mat, like you see the training mats here in the hotel for yeah. the fighters. It was like that, so there was no ring, there was nothing. They had a keg of beer in the corner, <laughs> and I remember there was a bunch of skinheads at this at this thing, and obviously I'm not white, so I was like, oh man, you know, hope I'm not fighting one of those guys, because if I win, I'm getting my ass kicked either way. But the point was is that it was just this mat, and and guys were just fighting on this open mat. They would go have a beer when they were done together, and it was just the way it was, you know, and that, and that, that was one of my first experiences with the competition side. And for whatever reason, I loved it. I was like, wow, this is cool. I need to do this more. Yeah. And so, you know, nothing was sanctioned basically when I was doing it. So I don't even know what you call it. I don't know right. if it's amateur pro. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So for me, I can't say like, I, you know, have this pro record of... I just have a bunch of experience just, doing it. just yeah. fought a lot. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, we'd fight every Friday night. Yeah. They would, they, people would come into the gym. I used to train at this gym called Champions, and people would come into the gym on Friday nights. Outside of the gym, they'd sign a waiver. And, you know, the, the, this Vietnamese guy owned it. His name was Bing, and he was like, hey, uh, if you sign waiver, you can fight, you know? And so they'd get in, and they'd be like, Mark, you and Brendan same size. I'd be like, no, we're not. And he'd be like, yeah, you are. And then we just There's get no in there and we fight. Yeah. No. And, we'd and everyone else that was there for a fight would watch. Yep. So that at the time, champions had a ring in a cage, which was way ahead of their time. Right. And they had this huge twelve thousand square foot facility, and on the other, on half of it, there was gymnastics in there, and the other half there was um, mixed martial arts, and so. We would get in there and we'd do our thing and then they'd have other people get in and then we'd go on the open mat if you wanted more sparring time and you would do that. And yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a ton of experience with a lot of new people. And that's essentially how I started. Yeah. Yeah. When did um, you realize that you could leave your career and make your new career in martial arts <laughs> either as a gym owner or a coach or like when does that transition happen yeah I, I i basically got forced into that i mean i started in 2008 i if you remember the economy was just garbage down, yeah. in 2008 2008 <clears throat> i told my wife hey 
I have the ability. This is the first time ever. I mean, I trained since basically late 97, 98. So let's yeah. just call it 98. So since 98 to 2008, I, I had just trained and didn't ever make a dime doing this, whether I was teaching or competing or whatever. So <clears throat> in 2008, I said to my wife, I said, hey, I have the ability to teach some classes at this spot and they're gonna actually pay me. And she was like, awesome, don't quit your day job, right? And I was in sales and, and I didn't. And I, for four years, I worked my sales job 60 hours plus and I started, I started just coaching there. And I, I would work my sales job, you know, those 60 hours, but in the evening I'd come in and I'd train guys full time and I would teach every class, whether it was the kids class or the open student adult classes. And then I had four fighters at the time that came to me that I, would, that I was training part-time. And they came to me, two of which uh, went on to the UFC. Chris Camozzi is one of them. He was my first ever UFC fighter that I ever cornered. Chase Hackett was the other one who, who had a brief stint in, on Tough and all that stuff. And then I had two other fighters, Nick Macias and Tony Miller, that were like, hey, coach, we want you to train us, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, I, I've, got, I've got so much going on with my sales career. I don't think I can do this, you know? And I told him, hey, go around, go look at the other gyms in, in the area. You know, Grudge was big then. Trevor Whitman had an amazing team over there. I told him, go over there, man, and go, go see what that's like. They came back after a week and said, Coach, we want you to train us, you know? And so I said, all right. And so I went to my wife and I said, hey, listen, if I'm going to do this, I got to run this like a real business. Like I would run my sales business. And, and we've got we've to really make this thing happen, you know, for, on the business end. Because running a gym is, is a business. And so yeah. she was like, yeah, but, you know. She worked too? At the time, uh, she didn't because one of the reasons I stopped fighting, this is a long story, but I'll make it short, is one of the reasons I stopped fighting is my daughter was born three months premature. Okay. And so my wife and my daughter almost died, actually. Um, she, was, she came, obviously, early at 26 weeks, and my wife lost 50% of her blood in her body in an emergency uh, C-section, wow. you know, that happened in... And so she, this? this was in, um, so my daughter, so 2000, let's see, this is a good question, 2010. Okay. So my daughter was, was born three months early yeah. and then it took about two years to get her out of the woods. So uh, she was in, she was in the NICU for 20 or excuse me for three months but for 20 some days 27 days we didn't even get to hold her right you know and so uh but my wife almost died my daughter almost died and then overnight we incurred medical debt that i didn't even foresee happening you know yeah. so with fighting being like i said quote unquote a hobby and financially that's yeah. not paying the bills um i was like man i i really got to buckle down here and so I always, I always kept training consistent. That's always something I've always done. I kept the training consistent. But 
with that whole aspect, it it kind it shut down me my aspirations of hey, I want to continue to compete and fight. Yeah. And so <clears throat> when all that happened, my wife had to stay home because my daughter needed physical therapy twice a day just to teach her the motor skills that she would learn in the womb over those three months that right. she missed. And, you know, to this day, we're super blessed. My daughter has no issues other than she ha she wears glasses because of the oxygen she was on. Uh -huh. But it could have been so much worse. It, right. I mean, they the diagnosis of what they thought she was going to have based on what she doesn't have at all. Yeah. Uh, it truly is a miracle. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, so that, so no, she didn't work. She stayed, she stayed at home and. But she's reacting to you saying you're going to treat this like a business. Correct. So I'm like, listen, we're going to treat this like a business and I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing. She's like, don't quit your day job. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've grown man bills. I got, I have a family to take care of. Uh, I have a mortgage. I mean, the whole thing, right? So I told her, I was like, I'm going to do this. It's, it's not that my my wife doubted me. It's that she couldn't see how passionate I was about that. And so if you fast forward. About coaching? About me running and coaching and starting a gym. Okay. You know, and doing that full time and that actually being my career. Right? Well, and then to see the vision of the sport. Exactly. I mean, that was three years before the Fox deal, or exactly. it was before the UFC kind of blew up. Exactly, it was. It was a few years before that ever even blew up, and so again, I didn't do it based on. I did it based on passion. I didn't, it wasn't about the UFC to me. It was about right. just teaching, giving back, and having fun, and and doing all that. And so, you know, I I remember I came to her and I said, "Hey, my sales job." They want us to relocate. So they wanted us to move out of Colorado. They were taking my position out of Colorado. And that was my bread and butter. That's what was paying the bills. Because <clears throat> the gym was not in the red, but it wasn't, it wasn't paying yeah. our mortgage and the whole thing. So I went to her and I said, hey, if, I were, if, I didn't, if we didn't move, because neither one of us wanted to do that, what would we be in the red without the sales job with what just what the gym brings in at this time and in this she was like about five to six grand a month and I was like what a month and so she's <laughs> like yeah and I said man I can do it I said if I jump both feet in I know I can do it and she was like babe are you kidding me and I was like no I can do it I said I know I can do it so I did. I just the second I jumped both feet in, the gym took off, because I was able to devote my all my time and effort to it. And of course, I'm still passionate, as passionate, if not more now than I was then. So yeah. it just it took off, and and we we haven't looked back since. When was that? That was in 2010. So you had a baby. Mm-hmm. Yep. Who needed a lot of help. A lot of help, and I just, I just, I don't know. I just, I knew, I knew if I jumped in and did it, that I could do it. It was scary though. It was yeah. super scary. I mean, to be. What was the scariest part? Well, just financially, you know. I didn't come from anything. I didn't want to go back there. Yeah. So I didn't want to fall on my head and then fail my family financially. 
I always knew though, man, if I fell on my head and the gym didn't work, I'll figure it out. I, I can hustle, you know? Um, but I just never even made that an option. I just was like, I'm going to make sure I make this thing happen. And it was never financially driven, even though I, I knew that I had to, I had to, uh, piece that I had to fill, you know, a deficit that, that, that was there. I just, I just knew, you know, the, the love for what I had and still have for helping others and being on their journey and giving back and teaching and enjoying the training and the whole puzzle that mixed martial arts gives you. Uh, I just felt like we could be successful doing it. And, you know, up to this point, it's, it's paid dividends. Yeah, sure has. Yeah. Um, which Kamozi was your first? Chris. Chris. Because Brian was his younger brother. Correct. Correct. Yeah, both have been yep. in the UFC. So Chris makes it to the UFC and you corner him. When was that? Do you remember that? So I cornered Chris right before he went to the Ultimate Fighter. Okay. Uh, started training Chris. I didn't train Chris from the beginning like I trained his brother, Brian. But I, I got Chris at the front end of his pro career I mean he, he had a bunch of fights but when you you know before he went to the UFC I cornered him and then he got the opportunity to go on the ultimate fighter that was um, Chuck and or and Tito that okay. season yeah and Tito was actually uh, Chris's coach for that show okay but Chris ended up winning but broke his jaw on on his first fight and they was trying to hide it, and then they figured it out, and they're like, dude, you're off. But then brought him back for the finale. He fought James Hammertree in the Palms uh, in the finale. And then Chris went on and had, <clears throat> you know, 20 fights in the UFC. Yeah. I don't know if people realize how many fights he had in the UFC, but he had some, he, he had some uh, good success, and he had some failure, too. So yeah. he and I, man, we, we really trailblazed that together, and I'm super grateful for him because... He, you know, like anything, when someone's that that first for you, you'll never forget that. Yeah. What are the some of the firsts for you that you that you mentioned? Kind of from going to be a coach mm -hmm. to being a, a UFC coach. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of a UFC caliber coach. What did that do for you? Meaning, in my career, what did it do for it me? Just or just you, personally? Yeah. Just I mean. You mentioned how important it is or, or how much you remember because it's the first. Mm, I see what you're saying. Well, a few things. I remember, you know, the first trip I ever did overseas was to Australia, to Sydney. Uh, Chris Camozzi was fighting Kyle Noak. And man, did I fuck that up. <laughs> so we went out way too early. We trained way too hard. Chris, you know, has some distractions there. And just... Man, I, I messed that. Personally, I messed that up as a coach. I'd never done that before, gone that far. And, you know, the time change and the travel and all the stuff. I mean, I traveled around, the, of course, the States. Um, but overseas like that, you know, Australia is the longest trip you're going to get. You know, that in New Zealand, essentially. Yeah. So, man, I, I screwed that up bad. And so... I learned when a lot. When did you realize that you screwed it up? Mm, in the middle of us being there, when Chris was like, I'm just fucking done training. I'm tired of this shit. I just want to fight. And I was like, uh-oh. You know? And they all, they all get like that a little bit. Yeah. But <clears throat> I, knew I, was, I knew I messed that up. I was like, man, I, 
I trained him too much. We got here too early. The, all this stuff was going on. And so I learned a lot from that. That taught me a ton about what needs to happen and what, what doesn't need to happen when you travel overseas. And unfortunately, it was at Chris's expense uh, on my side. But we learned that together and, and we made some good corrections together and we had a lot of success. If you look at his career, he actually fought a ton in his opponent's hometown. Mm. And we fought a lot overseas actually. And we had a lot of success doing that. Yeah. So, um, but I learned a lot from that, that you know, I screwed that up big time. So that's one of those first where I was like, man, this is, yeah. this is crazy. Go ahead. Uh, what are the most important things to you? now as you've kind of had years to try to figure it out because you're always probably figuring out new things still right do you mean uh, do you mean most important things essentially on the road yeah like like you're coaching somebody they've got a ufc fight coming up it's fight week what's the most important thing to you well to me there's a bunch of stuff obviously weight management's one of them um but ultimately where they're at mentally that's a huge deal. And, and managing their expectations before they get here. That's something without experience you can't do. And so I'm able to draw on experience, but I'm not saying I know it all because I don't. I still learn every, every trip I go on. But manage their, managing their expectations is huge. That's something that is awesome. Because if you think about this, if you go and I, and I say, hey, Brandon, Let's you and I go climb to the top of that mountain. And you're like, cool, I'm in. And then you and I walk to the top of the mountain or at least start walking around the bend. When you see the, the false summits that you think it's the top, it plays havoc on you mentally. You know, I've done, I've done that in the sense of literally hiking to the top of the mountain, right? So, but if I, if I laid it out to you and I said, hey, Brendan, listen, we're gonna get about an hour in and there's gonna be a false summit. Don't get excited. That's not the fault. That's not the summit. Then we're gonna hit this lake, and it's gonna be this real, you know, steady switchback, and it's gonna be heavy on your legs. And so, if I walk you through the process to get to the summit, when we get there, you're like, oh yeah, I remember coach telling me this. And again, you're gonna experience it for yourself, but your expectations are managed, and that's something that I learned quickly coaching is to manage expectations go and use my experience good and bad what I've what I've really messed up what I've done great at learn from both and then let's make the process better so essentially managing expectations and and really getting them dialed in mentally is a is a really big deal yeah so kind of walking them through the week almost yep. I, I would imagine when you have guys that are newer to the top level. For sure, that's, a, that's, that's for sure a given. But even guys that are more seasoned. So, because as they become more seasoned, the demand on them becomes heavier. So how, what would you tell a guy like James Krause who's been around for a while? Uh, we, would, we would just go over, hey, um, you know, is there, is there anything? So, for example, if you got here on Tuesday, which is typically when the athletes yeah. get here, <clears throat> we, would, we would manage, first of all, who's going to be here? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be another coach? Is it going to be a training partner coach? So, first of all, we get that done. And then we'd see what the demand is like when they'd get here. 
So with James, I, I wouldn't have to preface a ton of it pre-getting pre, uh, to the location, but when we get there, we would then stack the deck and, and manage expectations and also look at the schedule, get everything dialed in, figure out what he wants to do, and then, and then really cement that in so that a lot of times those vets, they don't like, they don't like surprises. Yeah, they don't. They they want to know what it looks like so that they can just stay mentally prepared and then lock in their training and what they're doing. Right. So I would make sure that happens, and then when surprises happen, they're minimized and they're not. The volume's not so high that it throws them off the tracks. Yeah. So that's what we would do with with someone like Kraus or someone in that tier that's a seasoned vet and has done this. He knows that he's going to get here and sign posters and pick up his gear and right, hotel right, room. Yeah. He, he knows all that. So yeah. we don't have to go through that. But right. there are things we still have to go through and manage. Yeah. And, and that's a big deal. So just since I've been a part of the UFC and announcing and things like that, it's been about two years now. But I feel like your camp, specifically Factory X, I think the Contender Series has done a lot for just different gyms because now you're on twice a week maybe, right? Exactly. Or now there's for at least the summer. But, um, and I've seen other comments online towards Factory X. It's like Mark Montoya's stable of fighters has really picked up steam. They've called you like an underrated coach, if that means anything to you or whatever. What I'm, I guess I'm asking is what has clicked do you agree with that number one that that you've kind of had this almost far push in the, in the past couple of years, and and if so, what has kind of clicked to to make that happen? You know, we haven't changed really who we are. One of the things I examined real closely before I said, "Hey, I want to start this gym," and 2010 is when we. Were Officially gave uh, the gym the name Factory X, and it, it became you know on paper that w- was the first very first thing I looked at was culture. What kind of culture do I want to have as as their head coach and leader, and, and and as a business owner? And if I was an athlete, what kind of culture would I want to be under? <clears throat> and so looked at looked at that. That was a huge piece. His culture. I come from both sides in the sense of, you know, an individual sport, whether it's fighting or wrestling or boxing or whatever, and then a team sport background. So from the, I wanted a real team. I looked around MMA and I was like, some of these teams are under the same roof, but in my opinion, they're not an actual team. They're just under the same roof. There's a bunch of individuals under the same roof. I didn't want that ever. I wanted a real team. I wanted it, I wanted a real unit where these guys had each other's back, whether they were in camp or they were out of camp. And so that's something that culture and that that real team, whether it was with the students and, and kids that trained there or with my actual, you know, fight team, I wanted that those two things to happen. And I knew that it was going to take three simple things. Simple but not easy. To be consistent, to um, you know, have vast sacrifice, and have crazy commitment. 
I knew that those three things, if they could do that day in, day out, that we could really bond and create the culture that we needed. So if you say, hey, in the last couple of years, Factory X feels like it's just taken off, I would say, I, I use this line a lot, what the, what the rapper exhibit says, he says, being underrated gave me time to create. And so that's, that's how I always feel, is being underrated gives us time to create. And so I feel like we've had that from the beginning. It, nothing's changed, it's just now we've gotten more attention with what was being built and continue to build. And so, and then ultimately, the biggest thing, I, I would say the biggest, biggest change was that the same foresight I had with my athletes, I had with my coaches. So for example, I tried to bring coaches in at one point from the outside in, and it just never worked well. I, I've had, I've had very minimal success doing that. So I was like, you know what, I wanna groom coaches. I wanna, I wanna build coaches just like I'm building fighters and have them be of the same cloth, same culture. And if they have a want and a will to, and a desire to coach, then I'm down to coach these guys. And so I came up with a internship program for fighters or, or people that wanted to coach for me that and i got this idea actually from our strength conditioning coach lauren landau um who we his team eric telly and wrigley uh we you know they have, they have trained my team strength conditioning wise forever and lauren's actually the head strength conditioning coach for the denver broncos now oh wow yeah so but at the time he wasn't he was he was just training athletes right including mma athletes so he has an amazing internship program that he takes from the colleges. And then those kids become strength conditioning coaches or whatever they become out of that. Right. But he, he told me, he gave me this number and this is where I got it, was he requires them to have 400 hours of internship, unpaid. And I was like, I like that. And so I... I said, can I steal that from me? He's like, for sure. Yeah. And so I, ad I adopted that and still to this day do that with aspiring coaches where they put in 400 hours of internship, uh, whether they're with me or with other coaches um, in the mix doing all that. And then after that, they start to get paid if that's something that I think that they're, they can help and do inside of our program and that they still have the desire to do yeah. after 400 hours. So <clears throat> that's something that honestly is one of the biggest changes is I had time to develop those coaches and now those coaches are able to give back and give me the ability to evolve with my job, which is not be there every day. Right, because you're traveling a lot. Right, my job is to be there Monday through Wednesday and then go into battle with these guys every weekend. Yeah. And my coach's job are, they have different roles, but they're able to fulfill what I'm not able to do in those, in my absence. And you know, my coaches are, are amazing fighters, but they're also amazing coaches. And one of the exceptions to my rule has been, you know, Professor Mario Cohea, we call him Professor Busy. 
he came from the outside in, but I've known him forever. And it took me almost a year of coercing him to come over and to yeah. be like, come on, coach, come on, professor, come do this. And he's been an amazing fit for us. He, you know, he's one of those generals there. But, you know, between our strength conditioning coaches and, and our MMA coaches, you know, we have nine to 11 coaches that are sitting in, in the gym, willing, ready, and able to help because they've gathered the knowledge and they have the desire to help others, not just themselves. And so if there's anything that was a turn, it, I would say it was that. And I'm super grateful that I had the foresight to see that because I did see growth. Okay. <clears throat> and so that, that, was a big, that was a big piece. The second piece is getting the right influencers around you that are smarter than you. So, um, you know, and the, the thing that I would say is when I had the ability to sit down with uh, Jason House and he and I sit down and talk and go, okay, this guy is of the same cloth as me. We're able to see uh, the same vision. Now let's go out and create it together. Uh, people like that have been influential. Uh, Jim Walter, he's, he was someone that was influential on that end too. So those are those those type of relationships are are really have been game changers and when you say hey in the last couple of years you guys have really taken yeah. off and had this momentum I feel like we've always had that momentum. We're just getting we're just developed more and we're just getting more attention now, but what we have has always been in that building it's and been there and it's, it's just it's been in factory x and yeah but we've had great influencers influencers like jason right? right and and like those type of his whole team right right that's the thing is he developed a similar team without knowing my design and what i wanted to do he he was developing a similar team with the foresight of i've got growth coming too right so we got to be prepared for growth and, and that's why one of the reasons we have good synergy there and we're able to consistently build and grow together. Yeah. When it comes to influence, you're dealing with a lot of different fighters and it's an individual sport, but like you said, you wanted a team. What is your role as a coach? Because it's a life coach a lot of times too, right? For yep. these guys. Yep. How, how important is that to you? Well, I think if you get on the mat and you coach, that's the easiest part of this entire thing, is that's the fun part, that's the easy part. It's the managing off the mat that is the most challenging, but also the most rewarding. And one of the things that I had done, and not by fault, but just by not, but just not by having the experience yet, was I created amazing followers, right? But if you look at this, that's not what this is about. I need to create amazing leaders. And so I've really shifted my whole thinking in, in how I deal with my fighters and my coaches and the people that I have in my life of, I don't want amazing followers. I want to help create great leaders. And so being a mentor on that side is hard because I'm, I'm a type A 
control freak to to give away some of my jobs that I'm like, no, I want to control this and do all this means that I have followers, not leaders. And so I I have really grown as a person on that end and really forced myself to do it, even though it's still hard to this day, to create leaders and not followers. And that's what that's what is important to me is to watch these people, men and women, these young kids, develop into leaders and seeing them step up and, and do this kind of stuff is why we have what we have because I tell my team every year, this will be the longest effing year in the books if I'm the only person holding, each other, holding you guys accountable. You guys have to be able to hold each other accountable. If you do that, we will have great success. Whether, not in just wins and losses, but just great success as a, as a group and a team. If they can do that, then we'll, we'll have great success. If, they, if I'm the only one with the iron fist doing the whole thing, it's going to be a long ass year. And, and I've challenged my leaders, my captains on the team, um, my coaches. They challenge me. And so that's a good thing. And, that, and that's essentially when you ask about, hey, that, that other's piece, that mentor piece, that's the biggest shift mentally that I've had to make over the last you know couple of years is mm-hmm. let's stop forming followers and form leaders yeah what's the most important thing for you right now going forward uh, just in you mean in MMA just yeah if I ask you what's your most important thing kind of what's your priority on right now well it's always first on my family you know my family and my faith those are those are the two things that I think have to be first is my faith and my family have to be in line in order to then go and be the leader that I signed up to be. And so <clears throat> that's not easy because as you know, travel every week, yeah. have, have influences every week, good and bad. And so that piece is important to me. That's always important to me because if I can keep that grounded, then I can be the leader that I was designed to be. Um, and it is a family business, isn't it? It is. Yeah, my wife helps me uh, every day. She runs what I call the back end of the business, probably the most important end, from social media to the finances, paying our, our employees. Okay, I mean, okay, all the yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. All the stuff that I don't do, she does. Right. So she allows me, gives me the ability to coach and mentor and grow and lead and she does all the tough stuff you know so it is it's a family business there's not a lot of them anymore and that's one of the reasons why I'm super proud of of what we've built to this point but I'm not satisfied because I feel like we're just scratching the tip of this iceberg that we've created we just have some moment more momentum than we've ever had and so but momentum can be lost if you don't continue to evolve. So I guess when I ask what's important, I guess in the in the MMA sense, what is your momentum building towards? Well, I, I you know I've gone out and said this uh, boldly, and I still say it. I would like to f- I would like to have five world champions in five years. Who's done that? No one's done that. Uh, I would love to do that. That's something that is a goal of mine that scares me. 
you know, I, I read that book, Chase the Lion, and I and actually my coaches are reading that right now, and, and some of my athletes, and, and Mark Batterson says in that, if your goals aren't big enough to scare you, they're not big enough. And so that scares me. Like, how the hell am I going to do that? How the hell are we going to do that? Uh, it's going to take some divine intervention. It's also going to take a lot of commitment, consistency, and vast sacrifice, like I talked about. And, and can we do that? You know, we lost, we lost two titles last year. You know, Anthony Smith is one of them, for example. That, uh, so we were there. We just, didn't, we just didn't finish it. But that doesn't mean we can't do it. So if you're talking goals, that's something that I'm really passionate about that. And that all starts on the day on the daily what we do daily, and so you know that's important to me. The other thing that's important to me, and I already talked about, is just developing leaders. Yeah, that those two things to me go hand in hand. So, <coughs> but those are the those are the things right now that are important to me when I look at when I look at the scope of what we're doing, and it's not all titles and MMA based it's it's about I always say to every athlete I've ever sat down with because anyone that says hey coach I want to come train with you I sit down and speak with them first we have a 45 minute to an hour conversation I'd rather do that figure out that we're not a good fit or we are a good fit in that than to train together and then it not work so sit down one of the, and the, one of the first things I say to them is my goal first is to make you a world champion in life and second, a world champion in the cage, in that order. And I, and I truly mean and believe that. And we get to share the vehicle of fighting to do life together, but we're gonna spend more life together than we are in the cage. So let's be world champions together in life, and then let's evolve that into you know, world champions in the cage. And I always tell them, if your goal is not to be a world champion in those two things, I'm the wrong coach for you. Yeah. I am. And some people don't have that goal, and that's okay. But I want to be forthright and up front and just say, hey, maybe I'm not, then I'm not the right coach for you. Go find someone else. There's great coaches out there. Go find some, someone else that fits you, you know? And that's ultimately what it comes down to is the right fit. Well, we went an hour. Perfect. So I, I feel like I could fight for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have the ability to be a world champion, <laughs> but... Outside the cage, I'm working on it. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome, man. Thank appreciate you. It. There you have it, my friend Mark Montoya. Always appreciate the time from all the guests coming on the show. Wish I could repay them with something, and hopefully in the future I can in some way with a cool T-shirt or at least something. I don't know, but Mark's a great guy, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. Got some big names on the horizon, I hope. I don't want to list them now because it's always a fluid situation on who I can get together with, but rest assured, I'm going to be trying to give you champions and former champions and uh, just really exciting fighters that uh, kind of trying to establish a relationship with. But uh, man, it's a fun show to do and I appreciate everyone who listens. So again, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Fits in a Fighter, and uh, always appreciate you guys as the listeners to keep tuning in. See you next time.